No walk-up music this time. I know you guys have gotten used to me having a walk-up song. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't have time to get around to that today. So uh, we're just going to jump in. So um, as much as I've tried to fight it, it is Christmas season. Uh, I couldn't avoid it any longer. Um, I could no longer point at people and say, it's not time yet. Because, well, it's time. Um, some of you are already wearing Christmas sweaters, and I, I can't tell you not to, because there's really nothing I can say about it now. Um, for those of you that know me well, you know that I do not like Christmas. Um, it is my least favorite holiday season. Um, the whole Christmas season always really gets on my nerves. So from like Black Friday to New Year's, I am a total Grinch. Um, and it's, it's typically Black Friday to New Year's, but uh, thanks to the greed of corporate America, uh, Christmas music and decorations start showing up in early November now, totally skipping over even sometimes Halloween. I, I'm seeing stuff before Halloween. So it, it just keeps getting pushed further and further back. Um, if you are one of those people that starts listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving has even come, I have a special hate in my heart for you, okay? So, as much as you can play it now, when January, I'm sorry, when December 26 hits, when the clock strikes midnight on uh, the 26th, turn it off, all right? So, for the next 20 days, it's all yours, all right? So, have at it. I'm not a big fan of Christmas. Um, my wife, on the other hand, loves Christmas. Um, Eli, would you bring up the lights if you don't mind? My wife loves Christmas. Yeah, just number one is fine. Um, this is one of her favorite times of year. Um, she loves the, ho- the, the lights. She loves the holly, the smell of eggnog filling the air, the smooth sounds of Bing Crosby crooning about Silent Night. Um, she, she basically spends the whole month kind of floating around with her feet barely touching the ground and smelling like cinnamon sticks the entire time. I, on the other hand, am trying to keep my grinchiness from ruining her bliss. Um, and there have been a number of years where she has pointed at me and said, don't ruin this for me. Okay. I'm the one who has to hang the lights from the roof in the freezing cold while muttering under my breath the entire time. Uh, The overly cheesy songs at Christmas really get under my nerves. What really gets under my nerves are the theological and historical inaccuracies in the Christmas carols, okay? Songs that are supposed to be about the story of Jesus that have history and theology all wrong. I'm a stickler and theology matters as I was having a conversation earlier today. Um, and I'm not a big fan of eggnog, to throw that in there. And, and to me, it's one of the most over-the-top, commercialized holiday seasons of the entire year. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever seen the movie Elf. Anyone? Okay, you've all seen that. Uh, raise your hand if that is one of your favorite movies, especially around this time of year. All right. It's terrible, but he loves it. Uh, so you guys will know that there's that scene in the movie Elf where he sits down at the breakfast table and he starts pouring syrup on the spaghetti. 
there's syrup and there's candy and it's all sugary and he starts eating it. And what is your reaction when you see that scene? To throw up, right? To cringe, to be like, oh my gosh, why would you do that? Why? Because it looks like he is eating an entire month's worth of sugar rush in one sitting. That is what the whole Christmas season feels like to me, okay? It feels like a bowl of spaghetti covered in maple syrup and sprinkles, and uh, I'm just not a big fan. But Sway, some of you ask, how could you hate Christmas? As a pastor, as a Christian, it's, it's about Jesus. It is about his birth. It's the most widely separate, uh, celebrated holiday. Um, and that's true, Okay. The real and true meaning of Christmas is the birth of Christ. Unfortunately, that true meaning of Christmas has been largely crowded out by commercialism and a jolly old elf from the North Pole and his reindeer and cutesy songs about snow and rapey songs about it being cold outside. So, Jesus doesn't get as much airtime as I would like him to. Um, That's why I get annoyed. But... All that being said, the Christmas season does, can, and should absolutely give us occasion to celebrate one of the most amazing and central moments of human history, and that is the incarnation of Jesus. This month, um, as a church, we are starting this uh, practice of scripture memorization together. And we received in the mail our first verse that we'll be memorizing using a resource called Dwell. That yellow box in the back has all the stuff you need. The temporary tattoos, the, the printout, the, uh, the keychain. My son is thrilled to do it. We all put our tattoos on uh, together. So if you haven't grabbed some of that stuff, grab some of it on the way out. And uh, we're going to be memorizing uh, these verses every month as, uh, as a church. Some of you have already started putting on these tattoos using the keychains. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Everyone stand. Stand together. And we are going to recite this month's memory verse together as a church. This will uh, become a common practice. So this is the time that you are called on. So our verse for this month is... The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John 1.14a. You may be seated. Thank you. This, this verse is a beautiful verse which is announcing, among other things, the birth of our Savior. So, for the next uh, several weeks, this verse is going to be the starting point for our reflections um, on Sunday evenings. Perhaps even some content throughout the week if I'm feeling froggy. So, today I want to focus on a couple of things that the Incarnation means for us today. In the 1930s and early 1940s, the entire planet was embroiled in World War II. The war affected every continent. Uh, Far East, Asia, Europe, the United States, the entire world was in turmoil. And we've spoken at various times in the past about the effects that that war had on American culture. Um, The effect, for example, that it had on the American home. Men were off to war, and for the very first time, women were a major part of the workforce. And so the home was affected greatly in the United States. In a similar way, 
the war was affecting the home in Europe. Um, men, as they were drafted into the military, um, were uh, sending women into the workforce there as well. And Britain was anticipating that it would be under attack very soon from Nazi Germany. And so because of this, millions of women and children were evacuated from the city into the countryside. And this evacuation took place in waves, the first of which and the largest of which was called Operation Pied Piper, during which three and a half million women and children were relocated from urban areas to rural areas. And by the end of the war, four million plus people had been evacuated to rural areas. In September of 1939, three young girls named Mary, Margaret, and Catherine were relocated to Oxford, where they moved into a country home known as the Kilns. And the owner of this home was a man who would later become very, very famous. Any guesses? That guy knows it. I can see it on his face. C.S. Lewis, that's right, C.S. Lewis. These young girls, Mary Margaret and Catherine, had a profound effect on Lewis. And shortly after they moved in, he began to write a children's story about four children who'd been relocated from London because of air raids. And these four children were sent to live in the home of an old professor related to their mother who lived by himself in the country. In this story, the youngest child began exploring the old house and happened upon a large wardrobe. And in the back of the wardrobe was a portal to a magical land called Narnia. The book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, was the first of the Chronicles of Narnia. The series would become a literary classic selling over a hundred million copies and inspiring countless film and radio and dramatic iterations. In the land of Narnia, filled with talking animals and fantastic creatures, a witch has taken over and she has caused a perpetual winter. But these four children, exiled from their home by war, would witness the return of the long-awaited king, a lion named Aslan. And if you've read the books, you know that the series has many allegorical um, references to Scripture, connections to Jesus Christ. And so, tonight, I am going to read to you an excerpt from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I'm going to do so in my very best British accent. And I'm going to try my best not to sound like Brian Kelly at a basketball game. This excerpt will frame our message for today. In this excerpt, a friend of Susan named Mr. Tumnus has been kidnapped by the witch. And the children are in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, trying to come up with a plan to rescue Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Beaver is going to warn them that it's no use because the witch is too powerful for them. It is no good, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver. No good you're trying of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move. Oh yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again that strange feeling, like the signs of spring, like good news had come over them. 
Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone, too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam, what a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her own two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I can expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to right, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm here to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you who is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who's the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. I- is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children not to be afraid because a lion is coming to rescue everyone. A lion who is fierce and unsafe but good. And it is both his fierceness and his goodness that will give them hope. So, let us now, with all of that and and with the incarnation in mind, Take what seems to be a wild left turn into the book of Nehemiah. Turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, where we will be reading the entire chapter. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 18. If you do not have a Bible, don't worry. The words will be behind me on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And there was Richard Nixon. Again, I'm, I'm kidding, sorry. I'm on a roll. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform they had made for the purpose, and stood beside him Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right side, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shibathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel shall dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh, seventh month, and that they shall proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and Jerusalem. Go into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. So, a little bit of background for what we just read. Um, in the late 500s BC, Israel had been invaded by the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians took them captive and destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. They tore down the city walls. During the Babylonian exile is where we find the stories in scripture like Daniel and the lion's den, Rakshak and Benny, um, and Esther. Uh, if you don't know who Rakshak and Benny are, that is a VeggieTales reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And how dare you for not knowing that? 
Um, during this time, there were many, many Israelites who were killed. Many of them died in Babylon. But after 70 years, a group of them was permitted to return to Jerusalem. And of course, when they return to Jerusalem, they find nothing but rubble. And they're led there by this man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah has gotten permission from the king to lead the Israelites back and to rebuild the city wall. Led by Ezra, they also rebuild the temple. Um, I think it was two, maybe three years ago, um, we did a full series on the book of Nehemiah. And so if you want uh, more information on that, uh, take a look at the podcast for that stuff. But one of the things that's important for us to note about the, the book of Nehemiah is that chronologically, Nehemiah is one of the last books of the Old Testament. Even though it doesn't appear that way in our table of contents, chronologically, it's one of the last books written before the intertestamental period. It's written in the 400s BC. And that fact is significant because that means that these are among the final words of God before the incarnation of Jesus. This is part of the cliffhanger ending before season two when Jesus comes. And though you may be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas or the birth of Jesus? I say to you, be patient Aslan is coming. So, in today's passage, we have Ezra and Nehemiah reading the law to the people. Now, most of these people have never heard the words of the law read to them directly. We are very accustomed to coming into church and hearing the word of God spoken. This was not an opportunity that they had back then. As you remember, many of these people were in exile. Okay, Many of them were born in exile. Among this group of people are a lot of people who've never been in Jerusalem in the first place. And so this is the very first time that they have had one of the scribes stand up before them and read to them out loud the words of Scripture. They've had pieces of this passed down to them from their, their forefathers. But this is the first time that a scribe stands up and opens the scroll and reads to them the word of God. For the first time, they hear it with their own ears. And it went on all day long. You've probably felt that here sometimes, I know. But how did the people respond? When they heard? What was their reaction when they heard the word of the Lord? Verse 9 tells us that they wept. Verse 9 it says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So, why did the people weep when they heard the word? As we examine why these people wept, we're also going to see a couple of reasons why the incarnation is so important for us today. So, taking notes, here's point number one. The law reveals our hopeless state without a Savior. The law reveals our hopeless state without a Savior. The children 
in Narnia are naive. In the excerpt that we read, they are unaware, they are naive, and they don't know the extent of the power of the white witch. They start strategizing for how they're going to rescue Mr. Tumnus, and they believe that they're somehow going to be smart enough, or wise enough, or cunning enough, or crafty enough to somehow infiltrate the castle and bring him out and make it out alive. And so, Mr. Beaver wisely points out to them that they don't stand a chance. They are none of those things. They will be turned into stone immediately, just like Mr. Tumnus. They need Aslan. Without him, they're hopeless. And so you have these children who don't know what they don't know, right? And Mr. Beaver is the one to deliver the bad news. Hey, sorry, you don't have any hope. On your own, you are hopeless and helpless. You cannot do this. That is sort of what's going on in this story. Ezra and Nehemiah read the book of the law to the people. And once they read it, these people are no longer operating under any delusion concerning their own salvation. These people are now realizing just how far short they fall. And realizing this makes them hopeless. There are so many rules, there are so many laws, there are so many strict standards, and no one can live up to that. Just the Ten Commandments by themselves are enough to disqualify us. Okay, if we read nothing but the Ten Commandments and said, here's what you have to do in order to be right with God, and it's not just about what you do on the outside, it's also about what you do on the inside. We wouldn't make it past the first commandment before we're like, well, count me out. We are guilty, and then guilty again, and then guilty again, and then guilty again. With the very first step into the castle, we've already been turned into stone statues. And these people realize it, and it breaks them down. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible illustrates this scene. And it says that as the law was being read, it was like a mirror. They saw the depth of their own sin. Uh, My friend who's a pastor says all the time, you don't read the Bible. The Bible reads you. And so, in the face of all that they cannot live up to, in the face of all of this challenge that they cannot overcome, in the face of the white witch they believe that they are doomed. And they don't know about the Lion of Judah. In their naive opinion, they see the fangs of the Lion of Judah and are convinced that he is going to consume them. Now I'm sure, if you're anything like me, you have felt this hopelessness when it comes to God. You have felt this way, that there's no way that I have any chance to be right with God. Look at all that he expects. How am I supposed to live up to that? How am I supposed to follow these rules? How am I supposed to live up to these commandments? How am I supposed to approach a holy and righteous God? I know the depth of my own sin. Perhaps you have thought that there's no way that God could love someone like you. Perhaps you view yourself as being beyond his grace. Now the opposite of that delusion 
is that many people have this idea that being a good person is enough to satisfy the requirements of God. They are like the children before Mr. Beaver's warning. Ha! We'll just walk into the castle, say, Mr. Tumnus, come on with us, and we'll be out of there. If I'm a good enough person, God will be okay with me. But what is a good person? How do we determine what is good? Who is keeping score of the goodness? In that kind of way of thinking, how can anyone possibly have any kind of hope when there is no objective standard whatsoever? When you talk to a person who says, well, if I just do more good things than bad things, maybe I'll be okay. Ask them, so what's your score right now? Well, what do you mean? Okay, well, you think that if you're going to be okay with God, you have to do more good things than bad things. What are your numbers looking like? What's the count? They'll look at you blankly and be like, what do you mean, what's the count? Surely you've been counting how many good things and bad things you're doing, right? How do you know where you stand on the scale right now if you're not counting? Oh, I I just kind of guess. (laughs) That's what your eternity is going to be based on is, is a guess? Here's the thing. When a person truly comes face to face with what the law requires, the only appropriate reaction is helplessness. It's the only appropriate reaction is to be helpless. These people are weeping for that reason. They know that they don't stand a chance at keeping the law. They just got back. They just started, and already they have the weight of this on their shoulders. They are desperate. They are helpless. They cannot face the white witch without turning into stone. And so there are typically two responses when you make this realization, denial or despair. You either pretend that none of it is true, or you resign yourself to the fact that you may as well not even try. But if that's where you are, before you take either of those steps, I just want to say, fear not, Aslan is coming. Point number two, Aslan's incarnation gives us a happy booth day. (laughs) I simply could not resist the play on words. I'm sorry. Aslan's incarnation gives us a happy booth day. So, let's take it back to the weeping here for a moment. These people are not only weeping because they cannot keep the law, they are also weeping just simply about the brokenness in their lives. Okay, remember the context of this. These are people who are returning to their ancestral home and they find it in rubble. And they are rebuilding it. In chapter 7, they finish building the wall, which was a monumental effort shared among the people. And so after all this work, the wall is now rebuilt. But even though now the rubble around them has been rebuilt, inwardly, they have not been. The wall may have now been fixed, but now hearing the truth 
of God's word, they see how broken they still are. And this is not just a matter of morality. This is not just a matter of of law-keeping. This is a matter of just the pain that they are experiencing. Heartbreak. All of us can, can identify with this, right? Pain. Heartbreak. Death. Loss. Sickness. Addiction. Betrayal. Rejection. The list goes on and on and on. All of us have experienced brokenness in a billion different ways. Some of us right now today are in the midst of some type of brokenness. Right now, today, you have walked in here or you've tuned in and you are carrying in your heart right now some kind of brokenness. In your mind, there is something that is shattered And so these people are standing in front of a brand new wall and they are longing for a brand new world. And they weep. And they cry. And Ezra and Nehemiah see this. Ezra and Nehemiah see the people weeping and they say to them, this is no time to mourn. This is a time to celebrate. Break out the steaks and the fine wines and everybody build a booth. Now what is going on here? Okay, what is happening? Verse 15 and 16. Uh, let, me, let me back up to verse 14. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel shall dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who'd returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the day of Joshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. So, everybody goes and gets these big leaves, and they build little huts for themselves, and they live in these little huts for a week. Uh, what the what, right? Imagine... You are just an average bystander walking past Jerusalem on a journey. You're on a road trip, on foot of course, and you're walking past Jerusalem and you're doing a double take. You're you're seeing all this stuff going on and you're like, what is happening in there? Uh, Community camping trip? Is this uh, like a fathers build their sons forts kind of a holiday? Is it? Is there a homelessness epidemic going on in there? Like, what's, what is happening? San Francisco came early. Too soon? Is, that, is it too soon for that? Um, so what's happening here? Why, why are these people doing this? Well, we learn from Leviticus chapter 23 what's, what's going on. It says here that they found written in the law of Moses. They find it in Leviticus 23. The people are celebrating the Feast of Booths. In Leviticus 23, 
uh, it says, they found this written in the law, that God had commanded them to uh, celebrate and observe this feast in order to commemorate how God had miraculously delivered them from bondage in Egypt and then provided for every need that they had in the desert. So every year, they are to look back to that time that God set them free from, from Egyptian slavery and provided for them every moment that they were in the desert. Every year, they're to celebrate this feast of booths. And we learn from Leviticus that there are three main symbols that take place in the Feast of Booths. The first is booths. Uh, In another translation, it might say tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles, same thing. Uh, So the three main symbols are the booths, water, and light. And so each of these had significance. First, you had these booths. These booths were a tangible reminder of the freedom from slavery in Egypt because God had provided the, the elements necessary for temporary dwellings for the Israelites while they were in the desert. And so while, God, uh, while they slept under the covering that God provided, they could say, I may be living in a tent in the desert, but I'm free from bondage. And here in the desert, God has sheltered me. That's number one. Number two was water. The water ceremony would occur on the seventh day of the feast and in part consisted of the high priest pouring water over the altar. And this water that the high priest would pour would commemorate the rain that God provided in the desert. Water to give them life, drinking water, water for their crops, water for their animals. And then finally was the lighting of the temple. And this occurred on the first night of the feast. There were these giant candelabras that were 75 feet high, filled with pitchers of oil. And they were lit to gloriously illuminate the temple. And this light commemorated the way that God led the Israelites by night in the desert with a pillar of fire. So, that's the Feast of Booths in the book of Leviticus. So now take this back to Nehemiah. So, Ezra and Nehemiah, they read the law to the people, and the people begin to weep. And then Ezra and Nehemiah say, hey, don't weep. It's time to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so the people begin to do this, and then verse 17 tells us that they start partying like it's 1999. Verse 17, And the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. So, they have gone from weeping to now rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? What now made a difference? What turned for them? What, what was it that made them go from crying to laughing? Well, verse 12 gives us a clue. Verse 12 says, All the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. If we read the same thing in verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, 
And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So, the scribes, the teachers here, read the word, and then they explain to the people, this is what it means. And so after they tell them, don't weep, it's time to rejoice, now let me tell you why. The people begin to rejoice because they understand God's response to their sin and to their brokenness. So first, they live in these booths, and they live in them and celebrate because God has set them free from the bondage of sin. Just like they were celebrating the fact that God had set them free from slavery in Egypt, now they are celebrating that God has set them free from their sin. God has covered them. He has given them a spiritual covering in which they can rest. When the purpose of the law was explained to them, it became clear to them that God didn't just give a bunch of rules so that we could earn our way to him. He gave all those rules to display how holy he is and how badly we need him to save us. And then he does. And this is where we come to the incarnation. This is where the incarnation changes everything. When the word made when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was starting a mission that only he could ever complete. Only he could ever go into the castle of the white witch and rescue us from this punishment. This word this this verse that we're memorizing John 1:14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is where Jesus sets us free from bondage. Where it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, literally in the Greek, in John where it says that, it says the word became flesh and built his booth among us. Built his tent, his tabernacle. The word became flesh and built a booth here with us, among us, not separated from us, not over there, here with us. Because Jesus himself was the booth that was covering us. We don't have to weep because we don't measure up. We can rejoice because we are covered by him. We're not covered by anything that we have done or could do. We are covered because Aslan has come. And Aslan has come to stand over us and cover us with his mane. Going back to this celebration. Now the people are celebrating with booths and they're also celebrating with water. They're celebrating by pouring water on the altar. And this water wasn't just about physical water, okay? The celebration wasn't just physical water. It was about salvation. Water was symbolic of living water. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. That water symbolized cleansing. Cleansing from sin that we could not provide on our own. Only he could cleanse us in that way. This water symbolized life, okay? Spiritually, 
they wouldn't have to die in the thirst of their flesh. Without the water that God gave the Israelites in the desert, they would have died of thirst. And in the same way spiritually, without the living water, our spirits die thirsty. And Jesus gives us reason to celebrate. John chapter 7, verses 30. Uh, 7 through 38, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he says, I will give you living water. Whoever drinks the water that I give him will have within him a spring of water, a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. My friends, you do not have to clean yourself up in order to get to God, nor could you anyway. He will cleanse you. He will give you life. He will quench the thirst that parches your soul. That is why it is so important that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us because in doing so, he was bringing us living water. Finally, these these people celebrated by lighting the temple. Giant candelabras, 75 feet high. And they rejoiced because the light of the Lord was shining on their brokenness, making them new. They no longer had to live in darkness, and neither do we. Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. I shine. I pierce the darkness. I cast the darkness out. If you follow me, you will have the light of life. That is what took place when the word became flesh and built his booth among us. In that moment, light shined like a blinding beam throughout history. The light of life began to shine on the earth. Aslan came and brought with him sunshine to melt away the winter of the white witch. The daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam could not create this kind of light. They needed Aslan to make it shine. My friends, you you and I don't have to live in darkness any longer. There's reason to rejoice because the light of life is offered to us. The the people in Nehemiah understood exactly what God was giving them. God was giving them freedom. He, He was giving them covering in a spiritual sense. He was giving them purity. He was giving them salvation. He was giving them life and they rejoiced Because of it, the people here understood, because it was explained to them, that Aslan is coming. They understood that the lion isn't safe, but he's good. He is rugged, raw, and completely holy. 
And he calls his people to be holy just as he is holy. Now understand that the lion is good. The lion is coming to rescue us. That is how the Old Testament ends. It ends with the promise of the one who is to come. Remember I said earlier that chronologically, Nehemiah is one of the last books of the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah are right there at the end. This is the cliffhanger before season two. This is the last word before the intertestamental period. This is where God says, dot, 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 Aslan is coming. The lion is on his way. Now, as you can imagine, in the book of Nehemiah, if you were to read further after this, um, the story here doesn't end perfectly. Okay? Um, it doesn't end with the people of God being faithful. I just want to be honest about that, okay? Because I don't want to give some, you know, all the sunshine and rainbows type of idea here. The people who are here rejoicing, the people who have wept over their sin, in the very next chapter begin to fall back into sin yet again. Even after this happy booth day, many of them fell back into their old ways. But there was a remnant. A remnant that remained faithful. And to those that remained faithful, the final word of God in the Old Testament was this. The king is coming. The rescuer is almost here. After all that the people had endured, it was almost time for the king to arrive. For the word to become flesh and make his dwelling among us. And when he does, when he comes, well, perhaps Mr. Beaver said it best. Wrong will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, Winter meets its death, and when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. All when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for the hope that we celebrate during Christmas that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God, I pray that this is a fact that we will celebrate every day of our lives. That in the good, in the bad, in the ugly, that is what will bring us hope. The word who has become flesh. Lord, I pray that in the hustle and bustle of these few weeks that we have until Christmas Day, as we're caught up in all of the accoutrements